The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. In Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. So I'm going to read the text, pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Acts 21, beginning in verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyree, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, We stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyree, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would come. I ask that you would do a mighty work in our midst this morning. Lord, I ask that you would come and do something that no other so-called God can do. I ask that you would come and speak to us. 
pray, Father, that you would come and confront places within our hearts and our minds that are cold towards you, dead towards you, living in rebellion against you, or living in distance from you. I pray, Father, that as you do that work, that you would do far more than I could ever think or ask or imagine. And I pray, Father, that you would bring us to a place where we, like Paul, would say, I'm ready to die for Jesus, the one who died for me. I trust that you'll do this and then some. In Jesus' name, and everybody said... I want to be really honest um, from the start that what I think I'm about to preach may feel very heavy and might feel like a punch to the mouth in some cases. I will tell you that my nerves are shot. If what I have prayerfully written and studied this week regarding this text is what the Lord would have me say. I do not typically give in to theatrics for the sake of theatrics or emotion for the sake of emotions. So I want us to be forewarned. And I ask too that as I preach, if you would, that you would pray and ask for the Spirit to speak, and not for my flesh to speak. That would be helpful to me. My hands are shaking. I've always admired the Apostle Paul. The more I study the Bible, and specifically the parts that record portions of his life, his ministry, I study his letters that he wrote to the churches that he planted and ministered among. I am consistently taken back by his unwavering determination for the calling of God on his life as a minister of the gospel. One of my deepest heart's desires when we began planting this church now almost 12 years ago was... Not to be the rock star minister, but to see a family of people who would be so on fire for the Lord that nothing, absolutely nothing, would stop us from our determination in becoming more like Jesus on a daily basis and in sharing Jesus on a daily basis. When I read this account, I'm reminded that the Apostle Paul literally lived with a death wish. Literally. He literally desired and said it multiple times to die for the one who had died for him. Again, there seems to be absolutely nothing at all in this world that would make the Apostle Paul deviate from his deeply held conviction that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was his conviction. 
This man truly possessed death wish. Regarding the passage of Scripture that I just read to us, one scholar says this. He says, Paul's mind was made up. Could not change his mind. No matter how many people around him were either A, criticizing or coming after him and trying to get him to stop in his direction, he was determined that he must do this. He must go to Jerusalem. A place that all but promised his imprisonment and certain death. For the apostle, suffering was the way of Jesus. It was not something to avoid at all costs, as is often found in our human culture. Avoid suffering. Not the Apostle Paul. For the Apostle Paul, this author says that suffering for the Apostle Paul was to be embraced seriously, not flippantly, and joyfully, not begrudgingly. And that by doing so, this would be expressive of God's use of us to accomplish His purposes, which even if we cannot fathom those purposes, are more glorious than anything else we could ever imagine. So I would surmise that a death wish for Jesus is something that every possessing, uh, professing believer should possess. We should all, if we are believers, literally want to die for the one who died our sins. You look at Acts 19, verse 21, months before this passage that we're studying today, and Luke tells us that Paul resolved, was committed to this, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And then last week in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24, Larry preached on this. Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And this next line reminds me of a Lecrae song that I love so much. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. I'm not worried about self-protection. If only I may finish the course, finish the race, and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. How many of us in this room today can say, I have received a ministry from the Lord, and I am called to what I am doing, all the way from cleaning toilets to preaching. Many of us say that. I am called. Nothing's going to move me off this calling. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul's death wish here is completely wrapped up in his deeply held conviction. Nobody had bullied Paul into doing what he is doing. Nobody had threatened him. He did not play the victim and say, well, this one guy said I should do this, so I think I'm going to give it a shot. 
Paul had actually met with Jesus on a road where Jesus pursued him and said, this is your ministry. And I would challenge us, as every one of us in this room had that experience yet. No shame if you haven't. Appropriate shame if you haven't. Say that. Like, get after it. Go find Jesus and ask him. What would you like me to do in ministry that would cause me to die? Literally. In our passage today, as Paul is making his way towards Jerusalem, the disciples in Tyre warn him. Verse 4, through the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. Interestingly, Paul had heard from the same Spirit and was headed there. And his friends had also heard from the same Spirit and said, hey, maybe you shouldn't go there. Then, while staying in Caesarea with Philip the Evangelist and his four unmarried daughters who prophesied, this prophet named Agabus. What a great name. Who names our kid Agabus? He looks like an Agabus. A bus? Agabus. I don't know. Came down from Judea, though, this guy did. After binding his own hands and feet with Paul's belt, there's some theatrics for you. He said, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. On top of this, Luke tells us in verse 12 that everybody around Paul is urging him not to go up to Jerusalem. The question is, what do you do when you're absolutely certain that you have heard God speak on something? You've heard God's direction for your life and your ministry. In, the, in, in ways that are not contrary to God's word, but are contrary to human reasoning. What do you do? I, I am absolutely fascinated by the amount of books I have on my shelf. Some of you probably know that. I'm also absolutely equally fascinated about how much those books contain in regards to human logic and reasoning. Human logic and reasoning is a gift from God. But it can also be used to stop a movement of God. When you think about what happens when you're in that moment where you're absolutely certain you've heard God speak. You've heard His direction. It's not contrary to His word. It is contrary to human reasoning. What do you do? Give up? Tap out? Go back to business as usual before, before coming to that point where you're like, hey, God just spoke. I'm pretty sure this is where I'm to head. This is what I'm to do. Somebody comes to you, a long list of humanly reasoned things makes you think twice. Decision to make. Tap out, go back to business as usual, retreat. Do you retreat from God's call on your life? And let's be, let's be honest and serious about what God's call on our life means. God's calling on our life means two things. You are called to Jesus to be holy as He is holy, and you are called to serve Jesus by making disciples of all nations. Those are two very broad categories. If you don't have those categories in your mind, you need to get them in your mind. 
you retreat from that call of God on your life? Or do you proceed ahead? Do you proceed ahead, actively putting sin to death, actively pursuing the loss with the gospel, even if it means you lose some friends? Even if it means that you might die in the process, do you go? All of the human reasoning in the world cannot account for God's purposes. And indeed, God's thoughts and plans are far above our own human ability to reason. Isaiah 55 says that explicitly. And yet I am taken back after the years of ministering among God's people and how often I will receive long lists of human reasoning devoid of actual biblical foundation. It's like the business books of this world and the psychology books of this world have taken front and center in our minds rather than God's word and an active walking in God's presence and listening. You know how stupid it looked for Noah to build a boat. Humanly speaking, he was an idiot. And yet he moved forward. How do you respond to the wise criticism and the humanly reasoned warnings of other believers around you when you know that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has called you to something that appears to be foolish, risky, dangerous, difficult, or costly? You know how many missionaries would not have gone across seas if they would have paid attention to those around them? Or the few around them, you could say. Look at the life of Hudson Taylor. You find a man whose ministry looks really ridiculous from the outside. A man who's under his ministry, he would say not a single person was saved. The hundreds of missionaries that he trained were murdered. It would look like a very fruitless ministry. Until you come to understand that God was doing something through that man in a culture that launched something called the China Inland Mission, which is still around today thousands if not millions coming to Jesus and churches being planted because of his efforts. All the human reasoning in the world does not account for that. Paul's response to the reasoning of his human friends around him, the logic of what they're saying is simply this, verse 13, what are you doing? Weeping, breaking my heart. He's saying enough is enough heard enough. I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is simply stating that he totally understands the threat. He gets it. He understands the threat of death. Totally gets the risk factor. Knows that the road ahead is full of danger and threats. Understands that humanly speaking, logically speaking, it makes absolutely no sense. He's counted the cost of following Jesus and following Jesus' call on his life with an instrument of death over his shoulder. He's counted it. And he's not afraid to die for the one who died for him. The scholars would point out 
regarding this passage that by all accounts, if you do the study of church history here, it would not seem wise for the Apostle Paul to pursue a death wish in Jerusalem at this particular point in history. It would appear by all accounts of human reason that the death of the Apostle Paul would injure this very young, very divided, and oftentimes very immature church in that time period. If you don't think the church was immature during this time period, read the letters he writes to the churches. Read them and put yourself in the shoes of those who were hearing those letters read aloud. Specifically, the times when they would read those letters and they would read through these lists of sins that existed inside that church. How personal that would feel. You imagine you're waiting. You're waiting to hear from the Apostle Paul. You're a young church, you've got sin still running around like crazy, and you know it. You're just waiting for the Apostle Paul to write something that would encourage you and strengthen you. All the way from the oldest, most mature believer down to the youngest, most immature. And word comes, we've got a letter. It showed up. And you gather expectantly. You show up early. Because you want to hear from God's word the man who ministered among you. And the leader in place there starts to read. And at times you're encouraged, and at times you laugh, and you remember things, and you hear Paul's very personal, specific words, and then suddenly he starts to read through this list of sins that you're known for. And he calls you to repentance. He calls you to die yourself. The one who died for you. Church in the West has forgotten, I think, these things. Paul remained convinced. The people finally stopped trying to persuade him to take a different course. They surrendered their well-intended criticism. And they said this, let the will of the Lord be done. Verse 14. It appears that Paul's death wish was part of God's will, even though it didn't jive with the human reasoning of his friends. Commenting on all the, the pushback that Paul received from his friends in this text, one author says this. Says, First of all, Paul's acquaintances demonstrated the all-too-common inclination of being quick to know God's will for someone else. Never experienced that. It fascinates me when somebody comes to me and says, I don't think God's saying that. I think God's saying this. Really, because I can hear from him too, so show me in the Bible. Go there. Happy to sit down with you. The funny thing is I typically don't hear Bible. Secondly, Paul's friends are trying to make God's will conform to their preconceptions. If you came in this room and you have been a Christian for longer than 15 minutes, you wear a certain set of glasses. You look at things a certain way. And your glasses may be different than mine. Doesn't mean we're enemies, right? In this case, Paul's friends saw some things a lot differently than he did. 
They had preconceptions about how this should go. Thirdly, in attempting to turn Paul away from Jerusalem, what his friends were doing is they were demonstrating their, that their spiritual focus here was more horizontal, human in nature. They, they want to preserve Paul. It's human in nature, horizontal rather than vertical or godly in nature. Because most of the time when it comes to following Jesus, pursuing ministry and a call, of God on our lives, it oftentimes does not make logical human. Same author here notes that the Apostle Paul overcame that opposition from his friends because he approached life in the same way that Christ did. They both had a death wish, if you think about it, the Apostle Paul and Jesus, didn't they? Uh, he refused to be deterred from God's revealed will, he was convinced about what God wanted. He was also not a man pleaser. Paul did not fear man's opinions. He feared God alone. <clears throat> I said on a course years ago to begin a ministry in our community, told this story. Started this ministry and then was confronted by somebody very dangerous and big and bad in a park. Said, you will stop now. At the end of the conversation, after offering to bless him and love him as much as I could, bring some food to your things. No. Answers I can't even repeat. My final answer was, look, I tried to reason with you the best I could. Respectfully, I'm going to have to decide whether I fear God more than I fear you. I'm not good at that. I do fear the opinions of man. I will confess that sin in front of you all day. And I will tell you, I battle that often. Paul also trusted in God's sovereignty, this author says. Even if he's wrong, God's still in control. God can do a lot with imperfect human leaders. Once again, Paul possessed a death wish, right? He's willing to die for the one who died for him. Nothing could deter him from God's will for his life. Can the same be said of you and I? Could it be said that you and I are determined to die for the one who died for us? Unless you uh, jump to conclusions and give me the great Christian answer, yes, Joe, I'm with you, great, hoorah, let's go. I want you to remember some other things the Apostle Paul said. Romans 8, 6-7, our men in our men's group probably about know this by heart now. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Question. Why would any of us be willing to die for Jesus if we're not actively dying to our flesh? And that flesh sometimes is going to include some logical human reasoning. Romans 8.13 If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. My question, how many of us here in this church family are still living according to the flesh 
unwilling to put our sin to death. Can I pause say, there are things I'm about to say that are going to be directly aimed at our church membership over the next few moments. Not a member here. Hopefully challenges you. I am of the mind, biblically speaking, that a pastor's responsibility, a plurality of eldership in a church, meaning Patrick and I, our responsibility to a church is to a church family, the members of a church, primarily. We have a responsibility to those who are not members as well, to be welcoming and inviting. A shepherd's job is to shepherd the sheep that are inside that pasture. The hardest part is you do that as an imperfect shepherd. You're a broken instrument shepherding people. And oftentimes what people want to do, what sheep want to do, try to make pastors into Jesus. They want you to be perfect. Colossians 3, 5-10. says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath. Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Question, can you locate yourself in that list of sins? If you cannot, your heart is dead. You understand the weight of that. Dead and in the grave. Not alive towards God. Does it move you at all to think that that might be you? That because you live in America where you have the freedom to walk into a church on a Sunday and make that part of your weekly rhythm among the 5,000 things you do, that you have been duped into thinking you're a believer when your heart is dead cold against the God who gave his son to die for you. Can you find your sin in that list that you, not the person sitting next to you, that you need to take to the gun range and unload a full mag into? I find that we are so concerned about other people's sins around us that we forget that we are sinners too. I find it all too easy to sit with so-called believers to hear lists upon lists upon lists of other people's sins and then hear excuses. I wasn't ready to repent that way. Oh, stand in fear then. I'm ready. I'm concerned 
we might know how to nod our heads in agreement to the questions I'm asking. We might even know the right answers to spiritual questions. You don't have to walk with Jesus for longer than 15 minutes to get the right answers. And not actually follow through with putting your sin to death. Like somehow after your time of following Jesus 15 minutes or 15 years, at some point you have gotten to a place where it's no longer about putting your sin to death and loving the one who loved you so much that he gave his life for you. Want to be like the Apostle Paul? Want to be a believer who's ready to die? It's not about posting things on Facebook about how you're so angry about the culture we live in. It's about you turning the six gun on yourself, picking up a cross. How would we ever have a death wish like the Apostle Paul to be overjoyed to die for the one who died for our sins? We're not first putting those sins to death. Give me a little bit of latitude over the next few minutes to make it very personal. I came in this morning weak and lacked courage in this next portion. And as Patrick and I prayed beforehand and thought through this, we realized what I said earlier. I'm not the Apostle Paul. But when every letter we have written from that Apostle contains a list of personal sins. I would not be doing us justice if I don't front us head on. Right? I was reminded by a friend this week, literally around 2 o'clock in the morning, as I cried in my garage in fear, reminded you're not being crucified yet. Although there is a cross on top of our church and it could happen before the day is over, but I do have at least one person that will stop it. <laughs> I don't know where he's at. <laughs> he didn't show up. No, I'm kidding. He's here. Lighthearted banter before I go to this. Okay. Two things I want to address with us. Um, I'm going to pause and pray. Is that with me? Father, I really sense that you have asked me to take us here this morning. Father, I confess my fear. I confess my weariness. And I ask that this would be honoring to you and good for your sheep. You shed your blood for Please give my heart courage. Help me to be gentle and open our people's hearts. In Jesus' name. Two issues I want to address. One is an issue of personal holiness. Heard me hitting on it. It's been observed um, by many visitors, members, and I would say affirmed by Patrick and I. Many within our membership openly practice and communicate things like this. Spouse bashing, calling your spouse names. 
among our membership being hungover or drunk or needing a drink on a Sunday morning before worshiping God. Showing up habitually late to surf on Sunday mornings or to Bible studies. Distracted or playing on cell phones during Bible studies and Sunday gatherings as though you really don't care. Bad-mouthing or complaining about your own children or other people's children. Not having your homework completed for Bible studies. This one's a personal pet peeve for me. Being completely absent. Just disappearing from Sunday gatherings, from Bible studies, without any communication to anybody else in the group or to leadership, while at the same time passive, aggressively complaining that no one cares for you. Not willing to be corrected because the person giving the correction does not have the same life experience or situation as you do. People talking openly, transparently about the sin struggles of their spouse in front of others in a way that causes others to view that spouse in a negative way. A resistance to, or at least a difficulty with listening to or learning from people who are younger or less mature. There's either a fear of this among us, or there is actually a sense of this among us. So it comes from both sides of the fence. There's a fear among those who are younger in Jesus, and at times a sense among those who are older in Jesus of a moral superiority. I think I'm guilty of that sometimes. Multiple confessions of having a seriously deteriorated relationship with Jesus. No vision or strategy for strengthening that relationship. While at the same time simultaneously standing in sharp judgment and criticism of everyone else's sin. God calls us to be holy. He is holy. He calls us to do that by pursuing Christ-likeness. relentlessly pursue Christ-likeness as we resolutely wage war against our sin. My question is this. The last sermon I preached here had to do with taking naps in church, sleeping, sleepwalking through spirituality. When will we wake up from our sleepy naps start waging war against our sin? When will we get a death wish, just like the Apostle Paul? Second issue in our church, though I will admit beforehand that this last year we made massive strides in number two. I do not want to preach a heavy thing too hard on point two here. Yet I would be irresponsible as a leader to not nudge us again and say, hey, we're doing better. Let's continue growing on this second issue. We can celebrate this last year as a church plant. It was the first year we reached financial sustainability based upon the giving of our membership. We do not expect non-members to give. If you want to as a non-member, please do. We'll take it. We need it. No problems asking. 
You want to see how much I make? I will show you my salary and you will see. I don't make a lot. I make more than some. But I don't make a lot in my profession. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention this, these things. This is something we have been known for as a church over the years. Something I would call disobedient stewardship. Here's some of the ways that it still, I think, is holding on as a sin. I think this is still some of the ways that, that we have not fought it away. Here's some of it. We splurge on non-essential things. Expensive coffee, fast food, cigarettes, vape oil, household upgrades that are not needed, gambling expenses, whatever. We do that while asking for financial help with items like clothing for kids and utility bills. I, a year ago, took a $1,500 per month pay cut. Haven't taken a raise in four years. The Lord provides. I am more than happy to be a tent maker in another way, so to speak, to make sure that my family is fed and cared for. Do I struggle with bitterness sometimes? Yes. I am confessing my sin to you. And I'm also letting you know I wage war against that often. Yet there are still a few members who don't give a dime to support our church budget. For me as a pastor, that's the closest thing to saying, I don't love you, but I expect you to serve me. Kind of like going to a garage and expecting your car to get fixed for free. I think all these things that I've mentioned are true of us despite many of the years of, I think, clear biblical teaching, one-on-one -on -one conversations on the topics of faithful stewardship and personal holiness. And I would say this, how many conversations does that take? For me to confront your sin one-on-one, -on -one, over the phone, or from the pulpit, for you to say, I need to repent of that. Does it need to? Do you need three? Do you need four or five or six or 12 years? How long do you need? I'll be here. Patience. One step at a time. Right? One bite out of the elephant at a time. I get that. But these kinds of things active among us are an absolute abuse of God's grace and mercy in the cross of Jesus. He didn't just give his leftover pocket change, he gave all of his blood. Jesus died so that you and I can truly live and not live recklessly and live in rebellion still, but to truly live free from the shackles of that sin. Totally devoted to the calling of God on our lives as a church family. Ready to die for Him because we know He died for us when we were still sinners. If you have not experienced that kind of grace and mercy, I pray this morning that God will remind you just as the Apostle Paul ran his way towards Jerusalem, so too Jesus in Luke chapter 9 set his face like flint. Smile on his face, and according to Hebrews, with joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He ran towards that cross. Because of your sin. And he calls you his own. 
there's no human reason in the world that will ever make that make sense. Stop trying to make it make sense. Sit overwhelming grace, mercy of the love of God towards you in Christ Jesus. Father, Lord, I pray that you would continue a work among us as we close. Help us as a church family to get a vision for what it means to repent of our sin. Pray, God, that you would use today to spark church-wide season of true, real, authentic, lasting repentance. Trust you to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.